Readers Entertainment Radio presents Book Lights with your host, author Lisa Kessler. Book Lights, where we're shining a light on good books. Happy Monday, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Book Lights. It's great to be back for another week, and I think it's also the first week of summer, so I hope the weather is beautiful where you are. I'm super excited today to introduce you to sci-fi writer, author writer, author Robert J. Sawyer is here today, all the way from Canada. And if you have not read him yet, you are in for a gigantic treat, and I will read you his amazing bio here so you can get to know him. Robert J. Sawyer is one of only eight writers to ever win all three of the world's top awards for best science fiction novel of the year, the Hugo, the Nebula, and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award. He's also won won the Robert Heinlein Award, the Edward E. Smith Award, and the Hal Clement Memorial Award the top sci-fi awards in China, Japan, France, and Spain, and a record-setting 16 Canadian Sci-Fi Fantasy Awards, the Auroras. His novel, Flash Forward, was the basis for the ABC TV series of the same name, and he was a scriptwriter for that program. He also scripted the two-part finale for the popular web series, Star Trek Continues. You know I'll ask him about Star Trek because I have to. It's sci-fi, right? He is a member of the Order of Canada, the highest honor bestowed by the Canadian government, as well as the Order of Ontario. And he was one of the initial inductees in the Canadian Science Fiction Fantasy Hall of Fame. He lives just outside Toronto, and I did put a link to his website and blog right there on the Blog Talk site. So if you're listening live, click that anytime, and you can sign up for his newsletter. He's also on Facebook and Twitter, and he also has a super active um, Patreon page that uh, is really fun with lots of content there, so you'll want to go check that out, too. So, without any further delay, are you there, Robert? Hi, Lisa. Thank you so Hi. much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. I'm really excited. You have a new book out, The Oppenheimer Alternative. You want to tell everyone why they need to go get it right now? Absolutely. Um, The Oppenheimer Alternative is my 24th novel, but it's timely in a way that most people wouldn't think of a science fiction book as being timely. It's this year is the 75th anniversary of the birth of the atomic age with the creation of the atomic bombs, a project headed by J. Robert Oppenheimer, the main character in my novel, The Oppenheimer Alternative. And it's time, I think, for us to safely from a distance, reflect back on what started what is still a mess we're in today. We're still very worried about North Korea having nuclear weapons, for instance. We're constantly worried that India and Pakistan, who saber rattle between each other all the time, both nuclear powers might conflate into a nuclear holocaust. And the thing about nuclear weapons is that they're never confined to the borders. They have an impact all over the world. They change the climate. So I wrote a novel that looks back at that time and looks at the main character, J. Robert Oppenheimer, and asks what if he got a chance, looking back at the end of his life, to redeem himself. History was not kind to him. Uh, The United States government wasn't kind to him. Albert Einstein said of Oppenheimer, Oppie's problem is he loves a woman who doesn't love him back. 
That woman is the United <laughs> States. That woman is the United right. States. They stripped him of his security clearance after he had saved the world, he was told, in, in ending World War II with the atomic bomb, uh, uh, humiliated him and put him out to pasture. And all great fiction is about people, you know, getting some sort of redemption. In the end, they've learned a lesson and they make good. And I wanted to give Oppenheimer that chance. So this is the Oppenheimer alternative, where after World War II, his life goes quite differently than it did in our real history. Wow, that's fascinating. And I didn't realize that he was ostracized afterwards. We, I know that we weren't expecting the bomb to be as gigantic, I guess, as it was. Um, was that part of it? It wasn't per se. It was the fact that even before he had been named director of the Manhattan Project, he was hired in a way that HR departments, human resources, would never do today. He was hired on the gut feeling of one man. General Leslie Groves was the military head of the Manhattan Project, and he was charged with finding a scientific head to report to him. And everybody said, don't hire this guy. This guy's a commie. This guy's a pinko. This guy's a red. And Oppie's, uh wasn't actually, as far as we can tell, an actual member of the Communist Party. But he was what they called back in the day a fellow traveler, meaning he shared a lot of their uh, idealistic beliefs and many of his close associates, including his wife and his brother, absolutely were members of the Communist Party. So it was more that he was tainted by the Red Scare. And then when that came back into the fore, and this was from the 30s that he had been involved, in the 50s, when that came back to the fore, Oppie, like any great tragic figure, had a fatal flaw. What was his fatal flaw? He was arrogant as all get out. And he decided (laughs) that he would publicly humiliate the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, Louis Strauss, uh, at a public meeting. And he put Strauss down so effectively that Strauss was livid and decided that he would destroy Oppenheimer. Well, you look around for the ammunition. He could have gone off to the fact that Oppie was probably uh, homosexual in leaning and bisexual in reality at a time where we didn't accept that in public figures. He could have gone after any that Oppie was a known philanderer, that he was cheating routinely on his wife, any number of reasons, but the one straw's pick was you're a commie, and nobody can make excuses for a commie today, and what thought about to destroy Oppenheimer and succeeded. Wow. And in your alternate history, I was reading the blurb of the book, and and you've got quite some scientific giants in there. Did you get to write in Albert Einstein's point of view? Yes. I got to do all (laughs) of these great characters, and it was such a treat. And I'll tell you, you know, I just finished reading uh, Where the Crawdads Sing, the number one bestselling novel of last year. And one of the complaints about Where the Crawdads Sing is that the main character – this, this woman who raised herself on her own with no family or friends in a swamp is not only a genius and a world-class marine biologist, not only 
a brilliant artist whose books are published in coffee, his paintings, excuse me, are published in coffee table books, not only is drop dead gorgeous, blah, 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 the list goes on, right? That she's an unbelievable character, larger than life. Well, right. some of these characters history handed me are unbelievable <laughs> characters, except for the fact that they really existed. Albert Einstein, right. Robert Oppenheimer, Enrico Fermi, Hans Bethe, Edward Teller, the great scientist, Richard Feynman uh, of the 20th century, the biggest minds, many of whom were incredible ladies' man, men, Oppenheimer was, swept women off, his, off their feet left, right, and center, Richard Feynman was. Uh, these were characters that if I had made them up, the reviewers would say, oh, come on, Sawyer. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's incredible. I mean, it's a gift, Lisa, as a writer, to be handed people and to get out of jail free card that says, yeah, but it's true. <laughs> you can't fault yeah. This really happened. These are the real people. <laughs> so where did you get this idea to do this? Because typically we hear sci-fi and we think super futuristic, right? So how did you get this idea that you're going to re- go back and rewrite science history? Well, as I mentioned, this is my 24th novel. You're exactly right. My first science fiction novel, I'm 30 years a novelist. First one came out in 1990. Uh, we're set in the far future, which is what everybody expects of science fiction. Or if not the far future, they think of Star Wars a long time ago, but in a technology that's far future. The galaxy, we have yes. Now, uh-huh. Right, the galaxy far, far away. Right. Um, and then I thought, you know, I'm not getting the readership I want. Frankly, I think that science fiction should be much more widely read than it actually is because it's very often a vehicle for social commentary. Uh, It dealt with race relations and gender relations and gender fluidity and all the things that are public as our front page news right now in the public's consciousness, we were dealing with them decades ago and having really sophisticated conversations about those topics and providing a platform for people Uh, of color and people of different uh, uh, gender uh, stances to have their voices in this field. And yet I I felt when I was sending my stuff in the far future, I was only getting the science fiction readers. So I started moving it closer and closer to the present day. And my breakthrough novel, the one that won me the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America's Nebula Award for Best Novel of the Year, was set only a few years in the future from when it was published in 1995. But I thought, you know, maybe I could do write science fiction novels set in the present. And my last several, Quantum Night, Triggers, Wake, Watch, and Wonder, were set in the present day. Well, what's the next logical challenge as a writer? And I only <laughs> want to write a book at this point. If it is a challenge, it's, hey, can I do a science fiction novel set in the past? Not a time travel novel, not a steampunk novel, but a novel that's a legitimate, big ideas, philosophical questions, science fiction novel that's set in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s of the previous century. And that was a challenge for me, and that's why I wrote the book. Wow. So you, wrote, you got this idea and wrote this book as a homework assignment. It's got to be for me, because at this point, <laughs> you, met, you read my bio. You read my bio. You know that mm-hmm. my bio, which is essentially the short form of my obituary, has already been written. <laughs> When I die, 
you know, my trade journal, Locus, which covers the science fiction and fantasy field, will have a decent half page about me. Globe and Mail, Toronto's, the national newspaper in Canada, will have a half page about me. Here's the guy. He's dead. And here's what he's accomplished. I'm not to add to that at this point. And my career has been financially successful enough that I don't have to write anything I don't want to. It has to be a challenge. There's no point otherwise. So, yeah, it's a homework assignment. I set myself <laughs> a high bar because otherwise yeah. I would rather, like anybody else, sit around eating pizza, watching movies, and reading good books than other people did the heavy lifting. Right. <laughs> Somebody else labored over. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, I wonder, um, I just finished watching uh, Chernobyl on HBO, their documentary, which if you haven't watched it yet, it's, it's something. You should definitely watch it. You know, it. It was, I, I it bought really it now incredible. on Blu-ray, Lisa. Yeah, I, I bought it on Blu-ray, and I'm waiting to watch it. My friend Brandon Braga, who co-wrote the pilot for Flash Forward and is uh, the head writer on the Orville, right? I says it's the best TV show he's ever seen. So it really was. It's in my queue to watch. Yeah. But no spoilers, please. I know the historical yeah, facts. No. I lived through. I lived through it for <laughs> right. God's sake. Right. But, um, but uh, yeah, do tell me. So you were making a, a point. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, no, it's okay. I I was just saying that um, there are things that happen with nuclear that I until I watched Chernobyl, I'm like, oh my gosh, I just didn't realize how far-reaching and and long-term and, you know, I mean, you hear about and you see the old films of Japan and things like that. And, and yes, it's big, but you watch Chernobyl and you realize, Oh my God, it could like, you really could wipe out the world with one of these things. Um, so it, it's, it's fascinating. And I think that your novel is very timely in that, you know, that kind of thing. I, I just think we can't really imagine how gigantic, these nuclear, um, you know, fusion, all, all of it is, I mean, the endless source of power is, is for energy generation is something, but wow, <laughs> the destructiveness is so a little you're terrifying. exactly right. Edward Teller, who is the father of the hydrogen bomb, Oppie was the father of the atomic bomb, which is a fission bomb. Hydrogen bombs are many orders of magnitude more powerful. They're the ones, sadly, that would be used in an atomic uh, war today. They're genocidal weapons. When Teller worked at Los Alamos alongside Oppenheimer, he had a chart on his office wall describing various bombs he wanted to build and how they would be delivered. The big thing originally, when they first thought they were going to make atomic bombs, when Albert Einstein signed a letter to FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, saying, we've got to be on the lookout for these, they thought they would have to be delivered by boat because they would be too big and be too heavy to be carried by anything in the 1940s. Well, it turned out they were able to make them small enough that they could be dropped as bombs. But Teller had a chart in his office yield of bomb and delivery method. And the last row on the chart, the delivery method was backyard. What did that mean? It meant you could set this one bomb off anywhere in my backyard, anywhere. And it would wipe out all life on the planet. That's that's a doomsday bomb. (laughs) Teller is often considered the principal model for Dr. Strangelove in the, 
uh, movie of the same name, the Sandy Kubrick uh, black and white masterpiece, Dr. Strangelove. This is the level at which people are talking when they talk about the destructive potential. And Albert Einstein, again, getting to write these great characters, so one of the great quips of all time. I do not know, he said, what weapons the Third World War will be fought with, but I know that the Fourth will be fought with bows and arrows because we will be knocked back to the Stone Age by whatever wow. weapons we unleash in the Third World War. Mhm. Yeah, and I that's so true. <laughs> yeah, I was I was um haunted for Chernobyl. It was just I I I never realized until I watched that how potentially, you know, I mean, they tell you that nuclear bombs are bad, but when you see the meltdown of that reactor, just like, oh my goodness. Wow. Uh, this yeah. This is the thing, you know, my novel, The Oppenheimer Alternative, I like to think it's the best novel ever written about Oppenheimer, but the best biography ever written, nonfiction book ever written about Oppenheimer, is called American Prometheus. And a Prometheus, of course, oh. in Greek mythology, is the mortal who stole fire from the right. gods. And the analogy to nuclear weapons and nuclear power is absolutely apt. Fire is how we Mm -hmm. cook our food. Fire is how we warm our homes. Fire is how we drive away predators at night. Fire is how we light lit the world until the era of electric lights. Fire was our greatest friend. Fire also burns people. It also destroys houses. It also raises forests down to the ground. It does enormous damage. It is a classic double-edged sword. And so is unlocking the secrets of the atom. On the one hand, it put the seeds of our own destruction into our hands. And on the other hand, as you mentioned moments ago, essentially unlimited and, if one believes the nuclear engineers, clean, safe energy. Right. It is the the great – and this is why science fiction is so powerful, by the way, Lisa, because science fiction is the literature of ambivalence about changes in science and technology. We're not cheerleaders. Our job is to come out and say, oh, yeah, rockets, atomic bombs, artificial intelligence, robotics, yay, 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 the best thing that ever happened. And we're not doomsayers. Oh, my God, any technology and all those things, we should all go back to horse and buggy. We're not Luddites. But we have a job that nobody else has in this cultural landscape of carefully looking at not just the short-term, but the long-term effects of any new technology, and asking ourselves, not what the public relations people say about, don't worry, nothing can ever go wrong here, but what if it does go wrong? What are the downsides as well as the upsides? And reading science fiction is so important for policymakers, for planners, for informed voters, which is why I've, I've devoted my life to it. It's not... Star Wars, I brought it up. I brought up the bad example because it's not escapist entertainment for teenagers. It's a way of engaging with the fact that we live in a a world that is ruled by science and technological advance. 
That's true. And I was lucky I got to meet Ray Bradbury a couple times before he passed away. And he, of course, was so devoted. I know. Oh, my gosh. He could make you cry just talking about writing. It was he was amazing. But but he would talk about sci fi with this glint in his eyes about that. um you can look at the world through sci-fi and dream of what it could be and the pluses and the minuses, you know, of how amazing it could be, but also, you know, how, how bad, I mean, you look at Fahrenheit 451 and, and, you know, here's this, this future where you have TVs on all your walls and no one's reading books and, you know, and, and I remember reading it in high school and thinking this could never happen. And then I walk around today going, Oh, <laughs> you know, so, absolutely. You we live in a cancel <laughs> culture right now where if you don't like what somebody is saying, you try to erase them completely, either deplatforming them, which is the hot buzzword of the day, make sure they have no audience to speak no to and no forum in which to speak, or, as Donald Trump is famous for doing, labeling factual reportage as fake news. Un- right. under, you know, it's the doublespeak. It's right out of um of uh, 1984 of making mm-hmm. it impossible to speak of something without speaking also of its negative right fake news right is an oxymoron and yet it is the tur- oh i saw that but it was fake news no it was news but you've right. been told to discount it by those in power science fiction writers well and, 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 and now we now we have alternative facts too that's an, another Absolutely. oxymoron. <laughs> if you can't hit, there's right. no such thing. That's right. <laughs> and we have raised a whole generation to think that what they feel is as valid as what we can prove empirically. You know, I, I don't feel that climate change is a problem. Well, we have data. We're showing Let's you. Yes. The data and decide whether it's not a problem. I don't feel, you know, don't all lives matter? Well, of course they do. That's, that's such a banal statement. As one of my Facebook right. friends, Michael Ventrella, said yesterday, you don't see all the people who object to um, Black Lives Matter uh, and say, well, come on, don't all lives matter? You didn't see them all rising up yesterday on Father's Day saying, come on, don't right. all parents matter? Right? We understand right. that there's special issues <laughs> for subsets of the population, times to celebrate and times to march in brotherhood and sisterhood with people who who may not be ourselves, but we do our damnedest to be the allies of. Yeah, yeah. The the same, you know, created equals. <laughs> but the, it, yeah. you know, and, and I come back to this over and over again, the brilliance. And I'm a, I'm a dual citizen, even though I live in Toronto, I'm an American-Canadian citizen. Brilliance of we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all right. men are created weak, equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. I mean, you could not – the United Nations, which was founded 150 years after the United States, echoes in their charter from people all over the world said, you know, kind of nobody ever said this better than they actually said it in the United States, except, of course, today we would say all people, not all men, are created equal. Right. But it, it, it's so galling to see a country founded on such lofty principles 
to willfully and turn still struggle. their back on them. <laughs> right. Yep. Yeah. That's it's it's strange. And you know, oh. with the um with the plague going on and the pandemic, I um because I do this podcast, I talk to writers from all genres and and I was talking to one who writes dystopian fiction and they were saying, you know, the interesting thing is writing all these dystopians and the zombie books and all this kind of stuff is they said, we never counted on people going, it is my right, my freedom to get bitten by zombies. You can't make me stay inside. I thought, oh my gosh, exactly. that's true. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, they the never that dreamed like, that that would be possible. <laughs> you know, I'm, uh, I'm I'm a baby boomer, which means by definition I was born after World War II. I didn't live through it, um, but my parents did. And when Britain was being bombed by the Germans in World War II, everybody understood they had to turn off their lights at night so that the right. the the German bombers, Hitler's forces, couldn't see the target. There was no place. For somebody say, you can't tell me I can't stay up late reading my favorite right. book. I don't care. It's my <laughs> choice to turn on my light. Everybody understood right. that when we're facing a common enemy, and the enemy here, mm-hmm. of course, is a disease uh, that affects right. everybody, that you got to band together. This notion that your personal liberty extends to right. the ability to hurt the collective is unheard of in human history. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> that was exactly what we were talking about. They're like, never in a million years did I think that there would be a, a you know, sector of the population who would go, it is my right to be bitten by a zombie. <laughs> exactly. You can't exactly. make me stay inside. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, I wanted to ask you about um, your audiobooks because I had read about your deal with the Oppenheimer Alternative, and you kept audio rights, and you've won Audis, and I am just dabbling. Um, I, one of my series came out in audio, and the second one is being started, and so I'm just learning it. But what do you love about audiobooks? Why should readers go grab them? Oh, well, first of all, uh, all of my books, except Oppie, which is late, thanks to COVID-19, are available on audiobooks. It's supposed to be out any day now <laughs> in the audiobook version. But I love them because I am an enormous consumer of words, and I read an enormous number of print books. But there are times in my day when I can't, when I'm treadmilling, uh, people when they're driving their cars, truckers when they're doing their job. Uh, there's an enormous amount of time for an additional consumption of fiction or nonfiction. And audiobooks do not cannibalize the print book market. It's been clearly demonstrated financially that they are a supplement to the print book market. To give people more ways to consume story, they will consume more story. Uh, I never read my own audiobooks, even though I'm a trained broadcaster and like to think I have a decent enough voice. But I always have a professional narrator involved who does it, and they have never once let me down, never once. And as you say, one of my books won the Audi Award, the industry's top award. 
for Best Science Fiction and Fantasy Novel of the Year. Well, that's an award for me as the writer, for Jonathan Davis, who narrated the book. Uh, you know, it's a collaborative award, and we were so thrilled, uh, John and I, to win that award. Yeah, and, you know, another thing that I have discovered is that a bunch of my readers who have read the books before, when they come out in audio, they're like, oh, my gosh, I have to get them. And so I was never a big audiobook listener at that point, but I thought, okay. So I went and listened to my books, and I was shocked because having the narrator, you know, they bring a whole nother level to the characters, and it brings the story alive in a way that I – hadn't even conceived in my head as I'm writing the book. And so listening to it, even though I had written the book, it was a whole new experience. I was like, okay, I understand now. Have you done that? It was fascinating. (laughs) So I'm by training a script writer and my job is to put the words on the page in such a way that hopefully any actor will read them the way I intend it. There have been revelatory readings of my work done in audio narration that surprised me but by and large i got to say no my experience is i'm so grateful that the actor found the sarcasm or the irony or the double entendre (laughs) that i had packed into the dialogue but had left unflagged in the text nobody wants to have at the end of the line he said sarcastically you like to think you're a reader to follow along but i think for a lot of readers they are surprised at how much there is in the text that a good narrator can find, unearth, bring to the surface. And so for many readers listening to a favorite novel read to them by somebody who really has spent time studying the text and figuring out how to perform it does add a whole extra dimension. Yeah, I think I think it's it's so fun. Now I'm an audiobook listener, so I listen all the time. I I think they're fantastic. So, well, I can't believe that we are running out of time. We could be here for hours, but since we're running out, I thought maybe you could tell readers the best way to get in touch with you. I know now it's so much easier to contact your favorite authors. Where do you communicate with readers the most? The most on Facebook. I just have a regular Facebook page, not a, like a, a, a wall like anybody has. But we've got 11,500 people participating every day there. Come join me. It's my nice. name, Robert J. Sawyer. Robert J. Sawyer. No punctuation, all squished together. And on the Internet, you'll find my web page, which is gigantic, a million plus words. I'm a science fiction writer, so it's at sfwriter.com. S is in science. F is in fiction, writer.com. And you'll find book club guide and a guide to what's true and what's false and the Oppenheimer alternative, all the bonus features, I call them, that you would look for on a Blu-ray release of a movie. They're there for the Oppenheimer alternative at sfwriter.com. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for joining us on Book Lights. Be sure to connect with us at www.readersentertainment.com for articles, blogs, videos, and podcasts that matter to readers.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.